Fantastic. Thank you, Lord. Isn't that great? So, today, the plan, I nearly terrified Cindy to death when I went over there in the middle of the worship. She was, she was praying and lost in wonder, love, and praise, and I just tapped her on the shoulder and she jumped out of her skin because I wanted to tell her that the prayer team needed to be ready to move at the end of the sermon. So, I was just pointing out to particular people. <laughs> Poor Cindy. I'm so sorry. People next to her thought that they're going to have to get the CPR going. Um, <clears throat> So, this morning, my subject is the anticipation of good things. The anticipation of good things. It's a Christian discipline. It's something that the Bible speaks a lot about. But it's something that today has kind of gone on the back burner because we are beset by a world of hurt, a world of trouble, challenge, and division. We live in a world where children are gunned down in their schools. We live in a world where injustice stalks the streets of our cities. We live in a world of inequity, inequality, and pain. We live in a world that is struggling to come to terms with a virus that closed down the world for a period of time and will be ever present on into the future. We live in a world that is racked by worry, anxiety, and fear. So how in the midst of a world like that can we be confident that good is coming? How can we live in a world like the world just described, a world so full of difficulty that we can be those who have a different perspective, a hope that other people see and wonder about? Beyond that, we live in a world where Christianity has become, at least from the perspective of the professionals who I deal with, Christianity has become something of a target for the naysayers and the anti-Christian voices. I was reading a paper uh, just yesterday, sent to me by a professor from Trinity uh, Theological College up there in Deerfield near Chicago, eminent professor of evangelism. And there he was able to identify three eras in Christianity in recent generations where the world's disposition towards Christianity has changed. From 1950 to 1990, there was a generally positive disposition towards the Christian faith. It was seen in the public arena as something that was good, and if you espoused Christianity, it was assumed that you were one of the good people. From around about 1990 to the, the, the first decade 
of the new century, it became a time when the positivity moved to a kind of neutrality. People had a neutral stance towards Christianity. And then from the second decade to today, the last 10 or 12 years, there's been a very clear differentiation between what used to be positive and now is seen to be negative. Christians are seen to be the intolerant ones. Christianity as a whole is seen to be not the positive presence within society that it always was, but amongst the cultural elite, the people who inform the public conversation of our nation, Christianity is seen to be a negative presence. What do we do about that? How do we live in a world that appears to be changing its stance towards the things that we hold most dear? And then, of course, I spend my time with professional clergy. Probably in any average week, I'll be coaching something like somewhere between 30 and 40 Christian leaders, pastors, that kind of thing. They're struggling with some real issues right now. George Barner's organization did a survey of church attendance post-COVID across America. The average drop in attendance is between 30 and 50%. So congregations are at least a third smaller, if not half the size they used to be. Some congregations of the people that I coach are, are two-thirds smaller. They only have a third of the people they had before, before COVID. This last week, I sent, um, I sent something that was sent to me from a member of the congregation from the American Bible Society. These are very cultured, clever, academic people who from time to time, we'll take a survey of Bible engagement amongst Christians. They'll ask confidentially careful questions that help to identify the level of biblical engagement amongst the general population of committed Christians. Bible engagement in 2022 is down 21%. It's the biggest drop since records began. And the leaders of the American Bible Society are wrestling not to begin using phrases like, the sky is falling. So you see, you thought it was bad, but you didn't know it was that bad. How can it be that we as Christians develop a different posture towards the possibility of impending difficulty, doom, and disaster? Paul, of course, has been a great guide to us. He's been a great counselor. He's been a great mentor. And as we've 
walked with him through the Acts of the Apostles, we've seen so often how his life helps us understand how our discipleship should work. In Acts 25, the passage for this week, Paul is now before a new governor. Governor Felix has been replaced by Governor Festus. Sounds like a cast from the Adams family. And here he is before Festus, and Festus wants to know the same things that Felix wanted to know. Why are you here? Why are these people challenging you? Why do they want to not only convict you, but kill you? And in verse 10, this is what Paul says in Acts 25. I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have done I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. He can be tried by the highest court in the empire. The highest court in the empire is presided over by Caesar. It'll take a long time for him to be tried by Caesar, but he's within his rights to ask to be tried in that high court. Festus, in verse 12, says this, after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Now, back in chapter 23, as Jason so helpfully shared with us last week, we had Paul in prison in Jerusalem before he was transferred to Caesarea that we heard about last week. And there in prison, no doubt fearing for his life, In chapter 23, verse 11, it says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul was not simply seeking escape from the charges of the Jewish elite. He was fulfilling the call that was placed upon him, a call that was the general call that he received at his conversion on the road to Damascus when Jesus confronted him, but also the particular call of Jesus when he came to him in his prison cell and said, you will go to Rome. There was a certainty, there was a certitude about the way that Paul operated. And because he operated with that certainty, his hope for the future, his anticipation of the future always included an understanding that God was up to something that was good. The world may be up to something that is bad, maybe even evil, but in the midst of it, God was doing something else. And of course, We know that this is in the mind of Paul because right before he's taken prisoner, he has been writing 
to the people of the Roman church. And as he's writing to the people of the Roman church, telling them that he's expecting to come there. So this is not, this is not Paul now responding to the words of Jesus in prison. This is Paul responding to a sense of the call of the Holy Spirit way before he was ever challenged in Jerusalem. There's a, there's a sense, a momentum, a, a sense of calling, a sense of, a sense of movement and inspiration within him that, that's, that's calling him to Rome. And he writes a letter of introduction. That letter of introduction has been the cornerstone of the New Testament ever since the New Testament documents were gathered. And in that document, Paul makes it clear that, that he's on his way to Rome. He doesn't know how he's going to get there, but he's going to get there. And as he writes to the Roman Christians, he says this, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We know. We know. The word know there is an absolute certain experiential knowledge. A knowledge that cannot be questioned or challenged. A knowledge that is so deeply ingrained into you that it's part of you. We know that in all things, how many things? How many things? Okay, so does that include a world pandemic? Does it mean that it can also be included in declining church congregations? A lack of interest in the Bible by Christians? How many things? All things. We know. We know that in all things, God is working. Now, is he producing the bad things? Not necessarily. Sometimes God will be using circumstances to bring people to an awareness of what he's doing. Sometimes he will create circumstances to bring people to an awareness of what he's doing. But God is always working in every circumstance for you and for me because he knows that we love him and he loves us along with everyone else in the world and he's working for good. He's working for good. Now there's a statement of faith. But there is evidence and there is a way of learning how to understand and learning how to operate in this disposition toward the future. And I want to spend some time with you this morning helping us look at, maybe discover afresh, maybe discover for the first time, how we can have this perspective. Because if we have a perspective that is anticipating good things, we will be different from so many people around us. The gas prices will be aggravating, but they will not change our disposition toward the future. 
The likelihood of another pandemic may well be real, but it won't change our stance towards the future. Because you and I will be those who live with a certain hope, a hope that is anticipating the good things that God is doing, the good things that that God is stirring, the good things that God is creating, and we'll be looking for, and because we're looking for, appreciating and receiving the good things in the midst of everything else that everyone is experiencing. So let's look at it. Now, just before Easter, I introduced a little alliteration that I wanted you to begin thinking about. We had looked at the life of Paul and and understood that he was a person who in his weakness was someone who was able to embrace and experience God's strength. And in doing that, we were able to look afresh at one of the, the key dispositions of a person who lives in the knowledge and expectation of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, in your prayers, once you've addressed God as Father and connected to Him intimately as your daddy, then ask Him to send His kingdom. And Jesus, at the beginning of His ministry, says, the kingdom is near, it's all around you. And the way that you enter into the experience of the kingdom that will be finally manifest on the last day, the way that you live in the presence of the future, is that you repent and believe. And we looked at the life of Paul and understood that his walk in weakness, knowing challenge and difficulty, persecution, insults and injury, was a way in which he was able to embrace his weakness. And in embracing his weakness, was able to acknowledge his frailty. And in acknowledging his frailty, accepting, accepting who he was. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. I, I live in this conflicted state. But he was prepared to accept that. Not accommodated. He wasn't prepared to accommodate his frailty. He wasn't prepared to accommodate his weakness. He wasn't prepared to accommodate his sin. But he was prepared to accept it as reality. Acknowledging the difficulties that he faced that so often brought to the surface the things that were in his heart. And in acknowledging them, he was able to accept what it was that was the real situation of his life rather than hiding his eyes from them. And in that, he was able to go beyond the acceptance to an articulation of the truth of his circumstance and the truth of God changing his circumstance. Because Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So now I will boast in my weakness, says Paul. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
This is the life of the repentant person. This is the life of the broken person. This is the life of the person whose heart is open to God using them. But today, it's not so much that we're going to look at the reworking or the re-understanding or a re-examination of repentance. It's much more looking afresh at the life of faith. And as I introduced just those few weeks ago, I suggested that, of course, we attend to the voice of God. And as we attend to the voice of God, we anticipate good things. And as we anticipate good things, we make an assumption that grace is available to us. And on the basis of an anticipation of good things, an assumption of God's grace, we're able to act. We're able to act in a way that others are unable to act. We attend to God's voice, of course. But in attending to God's voice, we anticipate good things. We make the assumption that grace is available. And on the basis of that, we act. We're not frozen. We're not afraid. We're not, we're not those who, in our experience of life, find it impossible to offer anything to anyone else. Now, we're not simply the recipients of the kingdom, we become the channel of the kingdom. We become the channel of the power that is working in our weakness. Because our life is disposed in a different direction to many others around us. Our life is a different kind of life. Peter says in his letter, always be ready. Always be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is within you. The hope that is within you that anticipates good things, that assumes grace, that causes you to act in a different way. People will look at you and they'll think, I don't know, there's something weird about him. Usually they, they focus in on my accent. They think that must be it. And then they think, well, it, it may be because he's tall. And so I have these conversations with people about accents and height. And I know what they're doing. They're trying to work out what, what is it. This person's operating as if the world's a good place. This person's assuming grace is there to catch him all the time. What kind of a person is that? Hasn't he read the newspaper? Doesn't he see the news? Doesn't he watch television? Doesn't he have a phone? What is it that can not cause us today to wish that we had an anticipation of good, but that we actually had it? Well, Paul helps us. Go to Romans 8, if you've got your Bible. And, um, and we'll get to see this a bit more fully. I've got a couple of things to say to you. Hope is built on history and the Holy Spirit. 
Now, obviously, it's alliterated, so it's clearly revelation from God. If it's not alliterated, you know, it may be or may not be. In Romans 8, verse 28, we read those words again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You've been called according to his purpose. And then in verse 31, it says this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? David, standing before Goliath, knew that he was not facing a giant but was standing in the shadow of a giant much greater than Goliath because God was with him. And therefore, who is this that stands before me? Nothing and no one. But look what it is that Paul goes on to say in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, Paul is saying what you need to do here is to recount the history of faith. Now, in doing that, he, of course, is standing in a long tradition of Israelites down through the ages. The Old Testament is filled with references to the saving acts of God. Those references have even emerged into our worship this morning as we think about seas opening and pathways being formed. God's saving acts are the things that the people of God have always been called to go back to, to look at and to understand. Because they reveal something enormously important. They reveal the character of God. They reveal the character of God. If God, in seeking to create a relationship with humanity, understood that our rebellion and alienation would lead to death and chose to adopt, receive and embrace that death himself in his own son and did not spare his own son, then we've got an idea about the character of God. The character of God is such that he will go to any length to ensure that the good that he has stored up for us will be received by us. Think about it for a moment. The incredible cost. The unimaginable pain. God would go through that so that you can have a better day tomorrow. Are you kidding me? 
so that you receive all good things. Because he's not going to withhold from you any good thing. And the good things that he has for you have been won, secured and assured by his character demonstrated and revealed in his saving act. The death and resurrection of Jesus. This is not something that is offered as a kind of whimsical, less than substantial idea. I tell you what, guys, just hope for the best. Hope for the best. I I hope for the best. Maybe you could too. There'll be a brighter day. Round the corner, there's a glory cloud. What? What are you talking about? It's based on his character. It's based on the actions that come from his character. And they are historically recorded. These are not events that are uncertain. We've even looked in the last few weeks around Easter. Chad helped us enormously to remember that the resurrection is not something that kind of could have happened. There's no other explanation. There's no other reasonable, rational explanation for the events of Easter other than Jesus died and rose again. These are real events. They're real recorded events. They are solid historical truths. And it's on the base of history that you have hope. Because God's character is revealed in history. And His character will not change. The God who sent His Son for you is the God who's waiting for you today to give you good things. Lift your head, Christian. Lift your head, Christian. The Lord is wanting to give you good things. Well, alongside history, there's something else. Something else that Paul reveals to us. And it's really quite amazing. And this is something that we evangelicals have wrestled with a little bit over the years. Because the other, the other reality that helps us to live a hopeful life, alongside the certitude of history, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit who does at least two things that Paul wants to identify in this particular chapter. The two things that the Holy Spirit does is to testify and identify. Testify and identify. Just say, turn to your neighbor, say testify and identify. Go on. Gives me a chance to have a drink. So the reason that we have 
An anticipation of good things is that we're living a hopeful life. Our disposition is hopeful. And we're hopeful because of the history of our faith. The solid facts of our history that reveal the character of God that will not change. The character of God that was revealed in history is revealed in our life and will be revealed tomorrow because He's working in all things for our good. But God does more than that. Because he knows that some days our brains are scrambled. He knows that some days we wake up and we can't remember history. He knows that some days we get up and we forget to do the one thing that we need to do to, to as it were, connect us to history, which is to be thankful. We'll talk about that in a moment just as we draw to a close. But, but because he knows what we're like. He gives us something that's even more substantial than history. He gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the person of the Holy Spirit whispers in our heart constantly. Now, that whisper may be Maybe something that is shouted down by the volume of other things that we have in our life. But there is a still small voice that whispers. And this is what he whispers. You're the child of God. You're the child of God. And God doesn't approach you as a distant parental figure. He calls you my child. As if you were the only one in the universe. And he invites you to call him daddy. That whisper of the Holy Spirit is right here in Romans 8, verse 16. Let's read from verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're God's children, Paul says, that makes us co-heirs with Christ. If we're co-heirs with Christ, that means that there is a whole inheritance stored up for us that is surely ours. So whatever else happens, you get in on the inheritance. And so that word of testimony, that, that testifying in our heart is something that changes our disposition toward the future because our future is defined by our identity and we are the children of God. That's our identity, which means that our future is secure. 
Our future is secure. We're heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in the sufferings in order. In order that we may also share in the glory. Well, that sounded like a little bit of a conditional clause there at the end. What was that, Paul? What was that? The suffering bit? If? Well, it's one of those ifs that is supposed to make you pause. Because it's not an if that's like maybe. It's an if that is a certainty. It's a kind of a rhetorical if. You're definitely going to suffer. You're definitely going to struggle. And so basically Paul's going, look, if you're breathing, it's that kind of an if. If you're breathing, well, then you're going to get all of this. If you live a life of an ordinary human being, which you haven't got the chance of being anything else, then you're going to live like this. And of course, it means that it's going to be a struggle for you. But this is when we get the extra gift that we weren't expecting. Look at what it says. Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager, anticip- eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What did you do when you heard about the stories from Uvalde? Did you groan? What did you do when you heard the stories from the Ukraine? Did you groan? What did you do when you heard the reports of the events surrounding the death of George Floyd. Did you groan? The whole of creation is groaning. Groaning in frustration, groaning in agony, groaning in longing. We're no different. Every creature made by God is groaning, not just the sentient ones, Not just the ones like you and I, but all of creation is groaning. And it's groaning for something to be revealed. And the thing that that creation is longing for the revelation of is you. You coming into your own. You coming into your calling. You coming into the fulfillment of your inheritance. Because when you do that, when we do that, the day is signaled when God again 
will place human beings as his regent over his creation and all things will be well. There is a longing in creation for the day when you come into your inheritance. But in the meantime, the groaning is shared by all of us. But there's something wonderful. Verse 26. In the same way. In the same way. So this is not dissimilar. This is identical. In the same way. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Isn't this amazing? It's amazing. Listen carefully. This will change your life. Listen carefully. The things that you groan over, your marriage, your children, your business, your extended family, your community, your country, the things that you groan over, in those very groans, the Spirit steps in and identifies with our groaning and He picks up, He picks up the inarticulated words of our longing and He turns them into intercession. He connects the thing that we agonize over with the heart of the Father who loved us so much. And the groaning becomes the connecting. And as we're connected, of course, He's whispering, remember, you can be here because you're children. And so you can't only just speak, but you can receive. And so the thing that the Spirit testifies is captured by the groaning with which He identifies. And our life is changed. And we live with a different disposition. We live with a different heart, a different life. We live in hope.